Mitch Michaels here. It's time for another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. And thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Because this show is going to be a good one. We got Brett Connors up first to talk about the tennis scenes. A tennis channel co-worker of mine. We're going to talk about Novak Djokovic hiring Andre Agassi. Alexander Zverev in the top 10. Rafael Nadal looking as dominant as ever. And what will we predict? Will we see in the women's side of the French Open with no Sharapova, no Serena Williams, and a wide open field? Good talking with BC. And then after that, we're going to talk to Tyler Tesson, good friend of mine. We're going to discuss the NHL playoffs, the Stanley Cup playoffs. We have a Game 7 in Ottawa and Pittsburgh that's going to come up after an exhilarating Senators win in Game 6. And the Nashville Predators advancing to their first Stanley Cup in franchise history. Nashville is popping. It's a party on Broadway. We're going to talk about that and much more. It's the Money Mitch Effect. I hope you're feeling good. It's a great show. Get ready for Memorial Day weekend. It's coming up right now. All right, it's my pleasure on the Money Mitch Effect to bring you some tennis talk. And for the first time, solo edition, Brett Connors, thanks for joining the show. Hey, how are you, Mitch? How's it going today? <laughs> oh, it's going great. You know, it's uh, another day in tennis paradise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as I and, and we were talking before we started, just getting back from Vegas this weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. Rule number one is that you're always going to eventually lose in sportsbook betting. I don't know if you saw the Preakness stakes, but having Classic Empire lose like that was a great introduction to uh, the Las Vegas sportsbook scene. So I was really happy yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to beat the the house, man. There's a there's a reason those places are so big out there in Vegas. Yeah, I was just happy I could do my part to uh, provide electricity, money, pay a few bills. It was, uh, it was provide some provide some AC for a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, they really needed it. But uh, while while I was there, and while uh, a lot of sports were going on, one of the bigger sports stories in the tennis world was the Rome Masters, Brett. We saw mm-hmm. for the first time somebody born in the 90s win a Masters 1000 men's title, and it yeah. was Alexander Zverev, who is 19 years old. Now, it's funny about that is the guy that was the next youngest to have a Masters title is Marin Cilic, who's you know, 28, 29 years old, so almost a decade difference. But finally, we got a breakthrough that we were waiting for. Zverev beats Djokovic, beats him pretty soundly in straight sets. Brett... Having watched the match, having been a big fan of Zverev's rise now into the top 10, was this his arrival or was this something else? Was this about Djokovic not playing well? Did, did Zverev go and earn this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely think that he uh, he earned it. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, maybe, maybe he didn't earn it if Djokovic, you know, with, with the way he's been mentally not there and kind of sliding a little bit. But, I mean, Djokovic had played so good the day before and killing team. Well, he, what he only lost like a few games to team in the semis. I feel like Zverev totally earned it. I just think it's great for the game, right? I mean, you have another a young star that finally had this breakthrough. I mean, you can say what you want about Djokovic and his ups and downs this year, but Zverev had to go out there and beat a be a very good player on a surface that Djokovic has had success at. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I think is the the big tell here is that it, he did it on clay. Like, I mean, it's Zverev's surface isn't – probably that's probably his, maybe his least favorite surface. I mean, I think he'd be a good grass court player because he's got the big power game and he's a good hardcore player. So to do it against Djokovic, who's maybe, you know, 
second or third all maybe all time as a clay court player just you know the last few years he's played was what made it impressive to me so i mean we're gearing up for this french open that's coming up this weekend that we're going to start the two-week roland garros extravaganza where we're not sure what we're going to see and it's nice to have somebody like zverev Uh, i know the draw doesn't come out till friday but do you think he's a legit player now does this signify that he can win this thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah. I feel like, uh, I don't know if he's maybe there yet. I don't know about the French. Just his three out of five on clay, he's got to beat Nadal probably to get it. The cool thing about Zverev that I like so much is that um, he's 19 or 20, and it's like I can almost, you know, not guarantee, but I feel like he's going to win a Grand Slam. Like, I feel like he is kind of this – the next generation, like we had, you know, the top four guys, the guys who are in their 30s, early 30s now, you know, there's like and then there's like this lost generation where there's nobody who lived up to their full potential, I guess I'd say, like the Nisha Corys, Chilich got one slam. He's a you know really solid player. But Dimitrov. Yeah, Dimitrov, even like, you know, like the, you know, some of the other guys I feel like, but with Zverev, like, I don't think he's going to go anywhere for a long time. You know, like, yeah. I think he's he's going to be top. He's not going to leave the top 10 for like quite a while, I feel like, you know. Well, you know, you mentioned three out of five, and that's a big point because it's a whole nother beast. Not, not just beating Nadal, but beating any of these top guys. It's going to be tough to do three out of five, and you don't get that many. There's not that many tournaments that have it, just yeah. the majors. Yeah. Uh, but... His record versus the top 10 at just 19 years old is pretty good. I mean, how many times has he beaten Stan? Has he had success against some of the guys we just mentioned? I mean, obviously the future looks bright, but for him to be making these leaps now at this point in his career is a pretty good bet to be winning a few slams. Yeah, that's what I think. Like like right now, I don't know about a slam just because he's still got to get through, you know, three or four, maybe the best all time. But in the three out of five sets and like, you know, I feel like he still needs to develop a little bit of like a, like a secondary game, you know, like where something where if his big power game isn't working, you know, he has like kind of a, a plan B, you know, and when you're only 19, it's hard to have a plan B, you know, that's good enough to win your tournament. So I think that's just something that'll come with like maturity with him. He's got a big serve. He's got a I like his forehand. His backhand is like really good, man. I really like his backhand. It's good cross court. It's good down the line, and his serve solid. He's just going to get bigger, and he's just going to get stronger. I mean, you know, guys can grow till they're twenty two or something. You know. Yeah, I mean, he is in pretty good shape too. I think that's what's held back a lot of guys that haven't made that breakthrough in the best of five is being able to go the distance. But you also know too. I mean, the game has changed so much. The sport of tennis, especially on the men's side, back in the you know seventies, eighties, nineties, even in the early two thousands. It was more common for players his age to break through. But it's a lot mm-hmm. harder to do that now. The top guys are sticking around a lot longer and playing at a very high level. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and you know, I think that I think also the idea of someone being old at thirty was a little bit oversold to us there for a little while. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I kind of feel like that, you know, they they just made that saying up and then they just stuck by it and then like, you know, fed and you know, now Nadal and Joker and Murray and even Stan. Stan wins three slams after he's like 28 or 9, you know. So I feel like that was more of like, you know, obviously some truth, but a little bit of a myth to that too. Like you can be. Right. Because now the thing is like with Zverev, he's big and strong, but now he doesn't have all the, you know, all the experience that someone older does. So it's like a trade off as always, you know. Yeah, we'll have to see though. At least it's good to have some youth pumped into this sport. But a guy, Brett Connors here on the Money Mitch Effect, that – 
is 30 and, and maybe not old at 30, but going through his issues, Novak Djokovic, he's got 10 grand slam, 12 grand slams, I should say, and has had a very tumultuous year dating back to about this time when he won the French Open and then immediately started to go on a bit of a slide, at least for his standards. He beats team, loses in the final to Zverev at Rome, and going into the French Open, the big story with this guy, Andre Agassi, is going to be going to the coaching box. Now, there was a lot of options he could have done for his coach, but on the Agassi front, what do you think, putting yourself in his shoes, Brett, what do you think went into his mind? Why do you think he reached out and went with kind of a controversial choice in Andre Agassi? Yeah, um, I think it's a I think it's a good choice. I think he probably feels like he needs just to shake everything up. As far as like, he probably still loves like Vida and some of those guys that he parted ways with. But maybe it was just like, look, you know, I'm 30, I'm, I'm married, I'm different. Maybe I need a different voice in my ear telling me like, what's up, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you need a break. And and as far as like the stuff going on off the court, like his personal issues, you know. That's tough, man, because like he kind of had this goal, like his last kind of goal was to win the French and he kind of got it. So obviously there's going to be a little bit of like a natural letdown. I mean, he's been so good the last four or five, I mean, his whole career, but the last four or five years, he's been like amazing. So, you know, you combine the little bit of a natural letdown with some personal issues that takes your attention away from your craft and puts it in an area where you're not used to putting it, you know, and so. Yeah, I kind of get it, but like it's kind of weird to see him like struggling. You know what I mean? Because he has the strokes, he's in the shape, he knows the sliding, you know. And it's just like, just like golf. I grew up playing golf. Like it's so mental, you know. And if you're not there mentally, just a little bit, then those guys see that vulnerability, and they're gonna try and you know take advantage of it. Well, what did Becker say? The locker room never sleeps. You know, I think that's the telling quote there. And it, you know, it's funny when you said you know needing another voice. I don't. I know. I'm not. I don't know if the power of hugs is and Pepe is just enough to get him to yeah. uh, another major. But look, Agassi is one of the few people walking this earth that knows what Novak Djokovic is going through. That's lived it, and I think yeah. that's more of why it was brought on. I, I think it's a little controversial because Agassi doesn't have that track record with full-on coaching, and Djokovic's box is kind of empty right now. But you know, I, it, it's it's so funny. I mean, he got to the top of the mountain he did everything he ever set out to do in tennis brett and now what i mean it, it shows you with guys like fed and nadal that keep it going that you know mm-hmm. it's really tough to do i mean to find that motivation that probably drove him for his entire tennis life for sure dude that's like that's what makes i think the guys who play so long and consistently like i don't think uh longevity gets the amount of attention it kind of should especially in a sport like tennis where it's like you against everybody you know mm-hmm. but um yeah, I think with Agassi, I think it's a good mix because the stuff that's wrong is non-tennis stuff. You know what I mean? Like with Agassi, when he fell off, he was distracted and then he, and he had his issues with the, you know, with his use of drugs and stuff like that. And like, you know, so it wasn't really the tennis that was wrong. That's what got affected. But it was something else where his mind was like distracted. And yeah. so I think that's where like this will help him. He'll be able to like, hey, man, like, you know recenter yourself and you know get get your family right i guess he's you know from what i hear like a really good family guy and and like spends a lot of time with his kids and his wife and you know they do a lot for kids so i think he'll be able to like kind of reground novak and like what's important in his life yeah and And then all of us yeah and somebody that won grand slams into their 30s too i think that's the other side of it 
Yeah. And as far as like the dudes in the box, I mean, that's, that's almost not, I don't want to say that's easy, but like, you know, you can find someone to like go get, get his tennis balls for him and book him and, <laughs> yeah. and book him a court and, you know, make sure he's got a massage afterwards. And he doesn't even need to talk to Agassi, but maybe an hour a day, you know, go, go with him on the court when he warms up, talk to him and talk strategy and that kind of stuff. And, you know, cause it's almost like with something like that, maybe a little bit less is more. Yeah, no, I just think every tennis player that's an all-time great gets to this moment where their prime is, whether it's not over or it's just on the backside of their prime, where they kind of have that, you know, I, I put it to the movie uh, 300, that King Leonidas moment where they see their own blood, and it's what do you do yeah. from here, and, and Djokovic is at a crossroads, he's had an unbelievable career so far, it's still going, but you know, the, the, the finish line, it's not in sight, but it's, it's getting to be in sight, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, also, like, let's be honest, like, it's an amazing situation for Andre to, like, look great, (laughs) you know, because, like, like, (laughs) well, and already he's like three in the world. I mean, in a year ago, we were saying he's maybe the best ever. And he has like a bad like six or, you know, nine months because of some stuff maybe off the court. And all of a sudden he needs to be rescued. You know, know, he's like what the second or third favorite to win this tournament. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so. yeah. Like if if he popped up and won this, would it be that surprising? I mean, he's the defending champ. I mean, he's, you know, so I don't know. He may not win the French just because he may have to go through Nadal and he may need some time with Andre. But like, you know, it would not surprise me if he went and like won Wimbledon and like won Toronto and then won the Open. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. all of a sudden got hot because Murray hasn't been right. And Murray's one of his rivals. So, and then Fed is like not really playing right now. And then the doll. So I think besides those three guys, he can kind of beat everyone else. Yeah. Well, it remains to be seen as we go into the French Open what version of Novak Djokovic we're going to get. Before we get to Rafael Nadal, we're going to touch on how great he's been playing in a second. Brett, you're very adamant about what the French Open, uh, the French Tennis Federation should do. Why is it so imperative that they separate Djokovic and Nadal on this on the on opposite sides of the draw? Uh, I mean, like you know, I don't think it's imperative, like so important, you know, in the big scheme. But as far as like is what we want as fans yeah. and what like would be, you know, what we want to see that Sunday, we'd like to see those too. I mean, wouldn't you like to see Nadal going for ten, and then Djokovic on the other side with like Agassi in his box for the first time and all the cool intrigue and like storylines yeah. that'll bring up? So. I think that'd be cool. So just, you know, they still got to earn it and get there, you know, so that's on them. But at least throw them on opposite sides so we can, like, see, you know. Yeah, (laughs) it's purely fan-based, fan-oriented. But, no, I I agree. I mean, we want to see that as the dream final right now, considering Murray struggles, Fed's not there, and we're not sure what we're going to get out of that next generation in a best of five major. But looking at Nadal, Brett, this was one of his best clay court seasons leading up to the French in his career. And that's really saying something. Winning Barcelona, winning Madrid, winning Monte Carlo. He is human. He lost to team at Rome. But to get back, you know, having the heartbreaking loss to Federer in the Australian Open final, losing to Fed twice in Indian Wells in Miami, to get back to this point in his career where he is the overwhelming, I would say, favorite going into the French Open, I mean, I don't want to say I'm shocked by it, but it's not exactly where we thought we'd be four months ago. Right. It's like it's kind of weird in a lot of ways. It's almost like 2008 again or something where it's like Fed and Nadal are the two best players in the world, like by far right now this year. 
Because jo- Joker's not right, Murray's not right, Stan hasn't really been living up to like a number three seed, you know. So yeah, it's the, the way, it's almost kind of weirder to me what's going on with Murray. Right. Like like Murray's number one in the world, and there's no kind of rumor or anything about anything being wrong with him. He's just not playing good, you know. I wonder if the pressure got to him. I mean, this is we talk about Djokovic's motivation. Murray was on the other side of that. He was chasing something for so long. He was always yeah. in the shadows, and even when Fed and Nadal had their down periods, he, he got to number two, and Novak just reigned supreme. But now you wonder. I, I don't know. He's he's a guy that's at 30. I, I thought maybe I was wrong. I thought he'd be able to play tennis and age well in, into his 30s, but maybe it is game-based. I, I don't know. You watch some of the matches, some of the leads he's blowing in these matches, very uncharacteristic. Yeah. I mean, part of me thinks like you're right. Like he had that was his last goal, right? I mean, he's won Grand Slams, won the gold medal. Like that, they wanted to get that number one, you know, next to his name. Now they'll never be able to take that away. And also, like maybe, dude, some players play better as a chaser than the chase. You know, like maybe he is like a better two or three seed where like people aren't like totally expecting him to win. He's not supposed to be dominant. You know, because it's like a totally different ball game where you're like always going to get the other player's best game. You know, like when you're number one, everyone gets up to play you. And that's that's a lot to deal with. And maybe that's just, you know, been something he needs to make adjustments for. The thing that's strange isn't that he's losing. It's who he's losing to. I mean, Australian Open, Misha Zverev. He's lost to a couple Spanish players in clay court season. Pospisil and Indian Wells, or whatever it was. Fognini just hit him off the court in Rome. (laughs) It's strange. And and you wonder, you're almost disappointed in a way, right? Because there's an absence in the game. Novak isn't at at his dominant self. Federer's on more of a limited schedule. This is his time to shine, and he's just not doing it. Yeah, I mean, that is what's kind of surprising is like, there is an opening kind of for him to be doing better. I mean, it's clay court season and that's not maybe his best surface, even though that's what he grew up on. But yeah, man, it's a little weird. And I think what else it's showing us is how like spoiled we were for like a long time with these guys. Cause uh-huh. like, if you think about it, there wasn't that many times where you're like, Oh, you know, Joker's really playing bad, but everyone else is good. You know, they've always been like semifinals, all, you yeah. know, meeting each other, beating their heads against each other, splitting all their meetings up, you know? Well, that's the thing. So I, I compare it to boxing, right? Like the heavyweight division. Like we just assumed, we got spoiled that if a major isn't won by one of the big four, it's a failure, right? Like if it's not mm-hmm. a dominant performance. But that's how tennis used to be. You know, that, that's yeah. how the history of the game has been. And mm-hmm. you just have this generation that's going to go down as maybe probably the best ever or something close to it where the top guys were just on so long. And, and I agree with you with that. You could say the same thing, not just to bash on Murray, but about Stan, about Milos, about Nishikori. I mean, there is an opening, and these guys, for whatever reason, aren't able to take advantage of it. Yeah, that's what the thing is. And then, like, that's the thing with a guy like Nadal. He's always going to take it. Like, if there's, like, a little bit of an opening or everyone else is slipping, like, he's out there working super hard. You know, and he's going to freaking – that's why he's there because he's like there's a little bit of an opportunity. Everyone else is slipping. That's like what he lives for is to make sure he's prepared and ready to take advantage of it. And one thing I do want to point out, in 2017, this might be remembered as a year, at least on the men's tour, for big-time coaching uh, adjustments that have paid off, right? You have Federer working with Lubacic, and immediately it pays off for him. You have, with his backhand especially, Moya is doing great things with Nadal. We'll see if Agassi can add to that list. I mean, I I think 
these guys are retooling their game, even at that level, asking for help and, and getting it. Yeah, I mean, I think Moya kind of hasn't gotten enough credit. Like, you barely kind of hear about him, you know? And, like, it's true. He, once he's come on, man, like, all of a sudden he's playing more aggressive a little bit. And, like, you know, he's taking command of the point. He doesn't seem – remember, like, last couple of years, he's almost seemed, like, nervous at times. Yeah. Uh, like, he'll <laughs> – Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, in the last couple of years, Luca Pui match, the U.S. Open. You're right. Absolutely. Like, like he's, he's looking tight. Yeah, go Going up against guys that have like you know not even a tenth of his experience, and you're like, whoa! I gotta tell the uh, I gotta tell the Carlos Moria story from our good buddy and friend of the show, of the show George Pinozian. Did you hear the nice. story about his uh, his mom's run in with uh, Carlos Moria? I did not. Okay, so I'll I'll tell it abbre- the abbreviated version on air. Okay, he, uh, it was the Nadal Bernie Tomic doubles match at Indian Wells, what they lost uh, and. Mm-hmm. She wandered down to basically the row behind Nadal's team. So she's talking about how she's a big fan of Nadal, you know, being uh, being Spanish and, and whatnot. And Moya was like, oh, that's good. She didn't know who he was. And then she goes, did you play tennis? <laughs> and really? Moya just kind of like stared at her like, you know. And George describes <laughs> it as like if it was a dude or any one of us, someone younger, Probably would have gotten a little upset because this guy was a former number one in the world. But it was, uh, yeah. you know, and, and that's part of the sacrifice, I guess, you have to make. I mean, taking that back seat to a player that, you know, has accomplished so much. But, hey, yeah. we'll see what happens. Well, I do want to ask you, Brett Connors, on the Money Mitch effect about the biggest absence of the weekend. And there are many of them. But definitely on the men's side, no Roger Federer. He won the Australian Open, had one of the best springs of his career, really turning back the clock but is not playing French Open. I don't know that anyone is in the position to tell Roger Federer what to do tennis-wise, but do you think, in your own personal opinion, that this was a smart move? Uh, yeah, for sure, I guess. Like, I, he could have – I think he could have almost maybe won, like, a couple of these tournaments. Like, if he just – you know, like, if he had been on Joker's side of the draw when team beaten it all, like, you know, or something like that, like, he could have won Rome just because he's playing so good. But – I think once you get older and you start becoming where you're in the situation like feds in like dude you are targeting like certain tournaments you're playing like 20 weeks or whatever and you're not playing that much you're playing you know your favorite spots the slams so i think it's smart like if uh, uh if anybody was watching on uh, a couple weeks ago when isner played fed in seattle in that, that match for africa tennis channel did an interview with um with fed mary carillo interviewed him and he said in the interview this is before he had said if he was going to play or not. He says in the interview, he's like, I've been practicing with Wimbledon balls. Mm. And it's like the minute you heard that, it's like you knew he wasn't going to play the French. You know what I mean? Like, right. And, and, like, why would he, and why would he, in his words, I think he said this too, you know, if you're not going to train for it, if you're not going to you know, play clay court events leading up to it, you're really at a disadvantage. It's almost like going just to go. And, yeah. And he still wants to win. He's not going to make appearances and, you know, and play a little tennis and see what happens. He's serious about it. I think it's good long-term. I mean, we're all spoiled that we want to see him at the French. We want to see him there. But if this is going to lengthen his career, I think it's good for Federer, and it's good for all tennis fans. Yeah, I mean, like, in reality, like, there's almost no positive to him playing the clay. Like, if he pops up and wins one of them, maybe, but it'd be hard because he's playing against Nadal. So he probably doesn't win and then he beats himself up and then he's playing with different balls so he's taking himself out of the rhythm with for his real goal which is another Wimbledon it sounds like 
So, you know, yeah, so he takes it off, lets everyone else get beat up by the clay season, and then he'll see you on the grass, you know. What's interesting is he said he'll, he'll be there in 2018. So that, to me, says he doesn't completely close the book. On the French, he can obviously change his mind. But this is the first year, full year after being injured, and I think he really is, is taking preventative measures to not get injured again, and it's hard to blame him at that point. Yeah, and I think like his the only tournament, if you really asked him, he cares all year, it'd be Wimbledon, you know? Yeah. Like at the beginning of the year, if you're like, what do you really, what's the one tournament you got to play? It'd be like Wimbledon. So like, you know, when, if that's his main goal, then like, you know, let him gear everything towards that. It's fine. It's a bummer for us because then we don't get to watch him play. Right. Well, you know? and, uh, and speaking of bummers, Brett, we have to at least mention the women's draw this year. <laughs> I, we're right, not, crazy we, year, we, man. We don't dislike women's tennis, but I think we're we're honest enough to be real about the situation. And it, it is. It's a crazy year, and it's a down year, not in the sense that you know Serena's still doing her thing, but you know she's pregnant now. She's out of the French Open, out probably through the year. And you know you have a lot of absences this year, and. and and also with that, Brett, players not taking advantage. A lot of like what's going on on the men's side where we're waiting for young tennis players to, to make that leap, and it's just not happening. Do you think that this French Open could be a turning point for some young players, or do you think, unfortunately, it'll be more of the same? I mean, I definitely think it'll probably be a turning point just because somebody's got to win it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I mean? Like whoever wins, unless it's Kerber or Muguruza, which it could be. I mean, like, they're probably just as big a favorite as anybody. I would almost take them over Halep just because Halep seems to struggle when the pressure's on her the most. But, yeah, like, I think it's kind of, in a way, it's cool because, like, maybe we get some new star and it gives somebody, you know, like maybe Svitolina, who's been playing so good, wins it. Or, you know, or Halep gets it after being, you know, in the top five for the last few years. and But it's also, like, kind of the you know, indictment of the game. Like, geez, it's almost like so bad you don't even know who's going to win like well, you know we might see Kvitova back which would be amazing I, I don't think we will but the fact that shows she's on point after the stabbing incident by Wimbledon is a good sign Azarenka will be back then this is an opportunity that's how these players should look at it you might yeah. never have an easier chance to win a grand slam you know Sharapova as well which I want to get to in a second but yeah. this is you'll, you'll never you might not ever have a chance and whether it's Madison Keys whether it's Fidelina Halep I really Coco, like Coco, maybe Meldenovich on clay. Yeah, I wouldn't count. Yep. I mean, we're talking value bets uh, a little later in the week, but I think that could Laura Sega <laughs> Mend. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, <laughs> the best back in tennis. That that goes yeah, without saying. Exactly, man. That's what I'm saying. But, the, but it's open. It, it's it should be viewed as such. And hey, well, I'm, I'm going to include Venus Williams in there, right? I mean, why, yeah. why not? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I kind of like it to tell you the truth. Like, this, it's kind of neat because, like, you don't know. Like, it's been so much in the past where it's like Serena, 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 maybe Sharapova, you know? So yeah. it's kind of neat where you're like, it could be anybody. Is that what tennis is going to be like after Serena retires? I mean, yeah, probably. So, unless cool. somebody. Unless somebody else pops up and becomes that dominant, which like probably will not happen, you know? Well, it's not but Kerber it's, uh, right now. You know, she's no. playing pretty poor. And Muguruza, who won here last year, is, is not playing her best tennis either. So. Yeah, she got hurt last week. She pulled out, yeah. uh, or well, you know, or, or had to retire. But yeah, man. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I definitely think I think Azarenka coming back will be cool. I think she'll win a slam within the next. I think she'll win one of her first six slams back. She was really. played Just, great last year. Won both yeah. Wells and Miami before 
she's yeah. pregnant. But but then like I don't think that Serena's going anywhere. Like if if anything, the last like month or two showed you that Serena doesn't doesn't want to be forgotten. You know she uh she tells the world she's pregnant on Sharapova's thirtieth birthday. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> you know and also at the same time is pregnant kind of stealing Azarenka's pregnancy thunder. <laughs> yeah. So it's like the minute like they give the grand slam to whoever wins the French, that's gonna make Serena want to come back even more because yeah. that means someone else is like getting yeah. some love. <laughs> you know what my favorite part about that was saying, um, oh, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to do it. And then it's like you're at the Met Gal like four days later, like you didn't think anyone would know, like twenty yeah. weeks. But hey, winning the <laughs> winning the Aussie Open eight weeks pregnant is uh, another notch in the belt for. Serena's pretty crazy if you think about Serena's, it, dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> pretty <insane>. amazing. <laughs> yeah, you know? well, it is. It's crazy, and and I do, you know, I do want to get your thought on Sharapova, Brett, with her not getting a wild card, not even to the qualies, which stunned a lot of people. My my take in it, and I'll let you go. Is I don't have a problem with it. They have the right to do whatever they want. I and and I am not defending her at all. I probably would have given her a wild card to the qualifiers. I don't think she deserved a main draw. I think it's unfair to the people that you know bust their tail, bust their ass year round. But I, I probably would have given her a qualifying main draw, or qualifying wild card. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of like, what do you want her to do? Because she got busted. Okay, so she got the penalty. She served the penalty. Now she's back. You know what I mean? Like. It's kind of like what what she's supposed to do. I agree that she shouldn't have got a main draw. She should have got a wild card and had to earn her and play her way in. Well, and, um, I, and I think too, this to me, <laughs> this is another example in life that no matter how powerful you are, how much money you have, what your status is, if you are unabashedly uh, unapologetic and if you treat people kind of poorly, <laughs> the, people yeah. will try to take you down because she doesn't have the best reputation. You could tell the girls in that locker room do not like her. And for a year after she got suspended, Brett, all she did was say, I pretty much did nothing wrong. Which yeah. I don't know. I mean, you don't have she to say. She didn't own it. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to say you were this huge doper. You just have to say, I shouldn't have put myself in that position. And she didn't do that once. And yeah. I think that's what cost her. Fair or not. I think that's what the, the end game was. Yeah. I mean, a couple things. First off, like in reality, it's absurd because she's like a two-time champion. <laughs> yeah, she's like a two-time the, champion. Right. And like they're missing all these other players, so they kind of need her more than ever. So in a way, it's ridiculous. But the French always kind of march to their own tune when it comes to like rules and stuff like that. But from the other side, like yeah, she's got the reputation she has. Like she kind of treats everybody like crap. So you can't treat everyone around you kind of sorry crappy, (laughs) you know, and then get popped for cheating. And then, you know, expect everyone to, like, welcome you back with open arms. You know, it's just it's just not how it's going to work, you know? Do you think the French Open should uh, be like the Masters or, or give somebody, I don't want to say lifetime entrance, but, like, entrance for, like, 10 years after you win? It seems like. I mean, it should, shouldn't it just be a lifetime? I mean, tennis careers are pretty short anyway. Like, if you win it once, like, I don't know. Well, they gave, a, then, wild, I mean, they gave a wild card to somebody that had doping history, and uh, I know they gave one to, I think, Tommy Haas got one. Yeah. <laughs> so they do yeah. pick and choose. They march to the beat of their own drum. I, I mean, and Chilich and Troiki will both be in the main draw. I mean, they've both been popped in, in the past for certain drug things too, I think, haven't they? Yeah, well, it hurts. I mean, she's she's a draw, and she's somebody that could win this tournament. 
That's, that's kind of why I think maybe they didn't want to do it. Is like they didn't want to hear for two weeks if she got hot that someone that a lot of them already had issues with was going to win their tournament. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, well, no Maria but, Sharapova though. Yeah, it just sounds but, weird. Yeah. One more thing though about it. So you're telling me because everybody in the game, I feel like, seems seems to kind of agree that there's some percentage of doping that goes on i've heard everywhere from like 20 percent to 60 percent like whatever you know yeah let's just say there's some percentage out there and out of all the people the one person they pop is maria sharapova <laughs> for melodonium yeah i, I think that's she, it yeah well i think hers <laughs> was just her being stupid you know it was on the watch list and they they announced we're gonna we're gonna change it we're targeting it and she just didn't correct whatever yeah. behavior whether it was malicious or not it was a it yeah. was a dumb mistake yeah there, there's there is a doping problem in tennis we've all heard the rumblings and then it, it's it's something that i think you know it, it can be hypocritical from these leadership positions that's the thing that's what i'm saying it's like it, it so you're saying no one else has gotten caught you know like nobody else got popped like last year anybody that we knew about anybody <laughs> any name yeah. It's just Maria Sharapova well, and some melodonium. Well, and I, I don't, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think I've told you my two. And I hate to accuse people of taking performance-enhancing drugs, but if I'm going to exclude the steroid era of baseball, look at two athletes. I think, oh, this seems a little strange. Uh, number one would be uh, the boxer uh, Marquez, who fought Manny Pacquiao four times, and on the fourth one at age 39 was 30 pounds stronger and knocked him out which he didn't come close to doing the first three times that guy's number mm. one number two would be uh robin soderling i just thought it was a little strange that for like 18 months he was the hardest hitter on tour and just destroyed the mm. doll on clay <laughs> which and then disappeared and then disappeared so uh, again yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that he did anything but it just those were my biggest uh strange moments there uh oh, but, i mean it's yeah. There's people out there who are doing it. That's the thing that's weird. It's like, okay, so you get Maria, you're on your game. You've only it's only been a banned substance for a month, and you pop her the first chance you can get. But so, but there's nothing else. Like everyone else has just figured out a way to cheat within you know within the parameters of the testing, or or they don't test for the right stuff, or the cheaters are ahead of the you know the testers and all that stuff. Like it's just a weird thing. And then after you know you see the kickback from what happened with Sharapova. It's almost like they can't afford for any big names to get popped because, like, right. the sport doesn't have that many mainstream stars as it is. Right, and um, and I should also point out if if like Soderling was completely clean, which he could have been, because it's not tested thoroughly, that cloud's always yeah. hanging over his head. You know, so it'd be yeah. unfair to him in that case. It's just a mess, and uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's it is what it is. It's going to go on. Athletes, unfortunately, try to do that from time to time, but. Sharapova gets popped. Well, Brett Connors, Money Mitch Effect. I want to kind of wrap this up by looking at some – we'll go back to the men's store for a little bit. Who are some players on that low end that – I wouldn't say favorite. I wouldn't say realistic chance to win the tournament, but who are some of your player, favorite players, maybe outside the seeded range or low-end seeds that you think could make some noise? Maybe you're just a fan of their game on clay. Who would they be? I mean, team's going to be one of the favorites, but I love watching him play on yeah. clay. He's fun. Yeah. Um, that means Varev, I think, could do some damage, although he's probably maybe, you know, it's, it's a lot of tennis he's been playing leading in. I like Pablo Cuevas. Yeah. He's kind of fun to watch. You got to good... look at those. those. <laughs> it's not, for non-tennis fans, it's not a negative connotation, but the dirt ballers, <laughs> the yeah. people that specialize in clay, 
a lot of them are European. They grew up playing on the surface. Vinolinas, Cuevas. Uh, there's a few others off the top of my head that I'm... Uh, Ramos, Vinoles. Ramos, Vinoles, Karina uh, Busta. There yeah. are some options there. And just being able to go best of five, I think... You know they could be they could be playmakers. I'm, yeah, we'll see. I I mentioned him earlier, but you think Fabio Fognini can make noise? He's going to go down in flames eventually. Yeah, I mean you know like make noise as in like when you string a couple good matches together. I mean probably yeah. When I say but, make you know. noise, I mean like potentially knock out a seat. Like that's kind of where yeah. I'm getting at. Is that this yeah, is a like tournament where we see top ten players lose in the first or second round? Yeah, like, I mean, would I be surprised if Fognini, like, beat Team or someone like that? Or Zverev, you know, someone who's, like, a top 10 seed, you know? But, yeah, I did, I, he could definitely beat him. I think this tournament's the the most with this, where, like, a ton of guys who can stop guys from winning, but will not win the tournament. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're called, like, stoppers, you know? Like, where it's, like, they probably, you know, like, a guy like Cuevas probably will not win this tournament. But he could beat Team from winning it. You know, he could stop. He could get hot and beat, like, you know, Wawrinka in, like, a yeah. four or five set or something like that. And these tournaments, I'd have to say, is not exactly ideal for guys like Milos Ronic and John Isner. Mm-hmm. Or Misha Zverev, not, not for those players. Yeah. Uh, I just can't see it. Kaney Shikori, we're waiting on him. You know, let's yeah. go. This is an opportunity. I think we'll still be waiting. But Gr- still waiting, man. And, and Grigor Dimitrov, I want to see more from him too. But yeah, just he's got to be one of the more frustrating guys right? on tour, just because he's got so, so much game. Like he's got so much raw talent, but then like sometimes he doesn't just know how to like set the plays up, like actually play. You know, and then he does against like Nadal in the Aussie Open, where he outplayed him for most of the match, and you're like, wow, yeah. where is this guy? But at the top, we we look at the men's draw, and you're looking at two, three guys that you think probably can realistically win this thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think obviously Nadal and Joker and Wawrinka, like the guys who have proven to us that they can win, are the ones I'd probably say can't, you know, can win again. I'm glad you brought up Stan because he's the one guy that I think you got to just throw out how he's playing leading into a major right out the window. Yeah, because he's a guy that. Lose first round, could definitely see. Get hot and win the tournament, could have actually see that too. He heats yeah. up. He's, uh, to, to coin a basketball phrase, he's the ultimate heat check guy. When he gets later in the tournaments, it's like he gained steam. One minute he's saving match points against Dirty Dan Evans, and the next he's beating Novak Djokovic for the U.S. Open title. Yeah, he's definitely, like, if he makes a quarter, like, watch out. <laughs> you know, like, if he can get through those first few rounds and navigate, like, you know, his round of 16 matchup or something like that, but... I like Stan, man. I think he's fr- a little frustrating just because, like you said, he's hot, so hot and cold. But that's just who he is. You know, like he's not going to change that now. It's like he's either maybe the best player on earth that day or, yeah, like you said, he can lose to Dan Evans, you know. <laughs> yeah. But you can never take away what he's done. Like late in his career, he got hot and has won three slams over Nadal and Djokovic twice in his prime. Like and the time he was beating them. They, they were, were number was, one. <laughs> they were yeah. all number one. <laughs> yeah. Like, and if you look at the runs he went on, like to win Australia, he beat Djokovic to beat Burdich to beat Nadal. It's like, any questions? You know, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, just, you can open. He beat Fed, Sanga, and then, uh, Joke, and then Joker. And yeah. all those major wins, but none of them were five sets. So yeah. he didn't even go to war with a lot of them now. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of incredible. Well, all right, Brett, I, I want just some picks now from you. 
Who do you think wins it? Uh, I, mean, I think the men's side seems. Well, it, it seems like it's straightforward, but you never know. What do you think? I mean, I guess it's so like obvious to pick Nadal, but geez, man, he's looked really good, you know. And then with not him not having Joker and Murray not being there to provide any sort of like defense, like you know, how do you bet against him? But like, I would not be surprised if somehow Joker plays himself into like form, and by the like semis or finals, all of a sudden it's like a you know coin toss matchup, like you would have thought like you know a year ago if they had played or something. If Joker gets his head right, we saw Nadal destroy him uh, a couple weeks ago at Madrid. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if he gets his head right, he's got the game, and he can go toe to toe with Nadal on any surface we've seen. But yeah, do I don't know. I like. Yeah, I like the fact of thinking the dog gets ten. I think it'd be kind of cool that he gets ten, and just how absurd it is that a guy has ten freaking of the same Grand Slam, man. Like, just what? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think this is Nadal later in his career. He's going to steal a page out of Fed's book. He's yeah. going to be selectively in a few years playing clay court season. That's why. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and skipping the grass and like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, women's side feeling froggy going going on. <laughs> Ah, Siegman's out there. She's still available. She's still on the board. Um, I mean, Halep should be the favorite because she's probably the most consistent top five or six player right now, which is not saying much, but I don't know, man. I just, I'll take the field. (laughs) I I think someone could kind of come out of nowhere, you know? Like, who is this? Like, Shelby Rogers made a run last year or something. I mean, I don't think she'll win, but, like, I think someone could kind of just be like that and just get hot. You know, and then somebody, one of the seeds in their side of the draw gets upset, so the road becomes a little easier. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I'm going to say my girl, my all-time favorite right now and forever, Svetlana Kuznetsova. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, no, that's a consistent player, so why Yeah, not? and she's good on clay, man. She won it in 09, and I don't know. If she doesn't beat herself like she always does, you know, she could she could win it. Yeah, I mean, anybody can go on a run with probably the exception of Jeannie Bouchard. That's probably not going to happen. No, no, <laughs> no. She she's not there. back. No, she's not She back. just pulled out this week at whatever <laughs> tournament she was in, so. Yeah, we'll have to see. Well, Brett Connors, this was fun. Uh, I do want to leave with one last thing. You're going over tomorrow, actually. You're going to fly out to Paris and work there. And as a man of uh, travel mystery, <laughs> what what's some good parts about traveling to Paris for, for people that, haven't really gotten that chance. Um, I mean, I haven't been that many times. I went uh, seven years ago for work, and then I was there a few years ago for some other stuff. You know, I don't know, man. Paris is cool. It just has so much like history. You know, you can, and it's got a good subway system that you can kind of get everywhere. You, know, you can take the train out to the Louvre. You know, see that. You can go see the Eiffel Tower. They got a lot of you know museums. The food's good. The people hate us, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's that. But I don't know. It's just cool, man. Like, I like Europe a lot just because there's so much more, like, history. You know, I got the catacombs and that that kind of stuff from, uh, you know, from back in the day. And I don't know. I'm going to bring my cameras and, you know, when I – if I get some free time, cruise around, try and take some pics and, you know, see what's up, what's out there. It is crazy to to think about how – brief the existence of this country america is compared to when yeah. you go over to europe you yeah see it all so yeah. i mean like we're like just a couple hundred years you know like that's like you know, my, my aunt's almost 90 you know <laughs> like, yeah. so 
But yeah, man, that's kind of neat, you know. And you get, and it's cool to see just like different culture, man. It's fun. Like I love being American and being over here, but it's fun to go and just be like, or, yeah, I like hearing the language that I don't understand and like trying to figure out what what's going on around me and like you know where's the where's a good place to eat and you know how, what train do I take? And it's just fun interacting with it all. Yeah, picking up what curse words are being said about the American tourists and yeah. right, yeah. yeah, laughing at me. Yeah, it's like you know, making fun of what I'm wearing and all that good stuff. Well, hopefully, hopefully there's some good tennis over there, and you get some downtime to check out the uh, the sites, for sure. But yeah, man. But all right, Brett Connors, sure. this was fun. Honey, Mitchum, yeah. your first solo appearance. I thought it went well. We were dropping some yeah. tennis knowledge on uh, everybody. So yep, always good. a pleasure, Mitch. Let's do it again. Oh, we will for sure. And uh, safe travels to and from France, and uh, we'll definitely be doing this again. I'll be seeing you around very very soon. Cool, dude. Hold it down on uh, on this end, and uh, I'll hit you up when I get back. Big thanks to Brett Connors for coming on the Money Mitch Effect, talking some tennis. Always a pleasure to talk to Brett. Uh, he'll be at the French Open, you know, working there, so he'll have a chance to take in all that good tennis and hopefully, you know, hopefully, getting to uh, do some sightseeing. And, and take some nice drone shots. His photography, Brett Connors' photography, is off the hook, so make sure you catch that as well. Now we're going to switch sports and talk hockey. I'm a hockey guy. I have been my whole life. I've caught just about every game in these playoffs. We're going to bring back Tyler Tesson, college hockey teammate of mine, to discuss these Stanley Cup playoffs. If you've listened to the show, you know who Tyler is. He's been on the show quite a bit. We'll talk about the Predators making their first Stanley Cup final, them overcoming the Ducks. And the Senators staying alive, forcing a Game 7, two best words in sports. Game 7, they defeat the Penguins in Game 6 right after, right before we taped this segment. We'll talk about that and much more. Tyler Tesson on the Money Mitch Effect. Here it is now. All right, it's time to talk NHL playoffs, the superior action this spring. Good friend of the show, recurring guest Tyler Tesson on the Money Mitch Effect. Tyler, thanks again for joining the show. No problem. Thanks for having me, Mitch. I think it's it's kind of weird, right, to be talking about a sport where you can't sweep your way to the finals. It's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quite the uh, contrary from uh, from the NBA going on right now. Well, we have one team in the final and one team that's still, one series that's still waiting to uh, find a winner as we record this on a Tuesday night. There'll be a seventh game, and it's not necessarily in the series that we thought we would see, and that, Tyler, is the Eastern Conference Final, Ottawa and Pittsburgh. Ottawa wins tonight's game by a score of 2-1 to one after losing game 5-7 to nothing. That was... Quite an about face, and and I'll start with this, Tyler, on a scale of, I guess, 1 to 10. How shocked are you that Ottawa comes back after getting annihilated, obliterated in Game 5, that they went out and did what they had to do to steal this Game 6? Yeah, I was shocked, especially with you knew Anderson was going to be the reason. If they were going to win a game, he'd be the reason for it. And with him getting pulled twice in the last game, you know, losing 7 nothing, you know, yeah, I think his confidence was down at that point, but he responds tonight with 45 saves and basically wins the game for him. Yeah, it's pretty insane how good he's been playing other than that game five where he kind of got lit up. 
Uh, and just tonight's performance being, I think Eddie Olchek said, all three stars belong to him. When you consider what he's going through in his personal life and, and just the test of playing this Penguins team, I mean, we talk about how scary that forward depth is. As a goalie, Tyler, he doesn't have any shifts where he can kind of wolf a little bit. You know, every line that Pittsburgh has can score and has scored, and I think that's what makes it all the more impressive what he's done. Yeah, absolutely. There's never a point where you're off. I mean, Pittsburgh's power play is one of the best ones out there. You have every guy on the ice that can score at any point. You know, you have three lines that can score well, so you just get no time off at all. Well, I'm stunned that Pittsburgh didn't win, you know, Anderson's good play notwithstanding, but after the first period and a half, it really looked like it was Pittsburgh's game. They were controlling all the action, especially even strength. They were drawing a lot of penalties. The power play had good looks, but they couldn't score. Do you think it was a case of frustration as this game wore on that Pittsburgh, with, with all that star power, with guys that are used to scoring goals, the Malkins, the Crosbys, the Kessels, and now Jake Gunsel, do you think they were surprised and, and frustrated? as this game were on that they weren't able to break through? Yeah, I think so, but it it was strange. A lot of the good scoring chances they had were, you know, the puck was rolling or, you know, they didn't get a great shot off it from just a clean scoring chance. There weren't a lot of great shots near the end. You know, like Crosby had the one where he deflected off Malkin, but Malkin kind of whiffed on it, and then the other one, Crosby won times, the puck's rolling, so... I think there was some luck involved for the Senators as well. And then the controversial no-goal called, and I think it was the first or second period, you know, which I think if it went either way, I don't think you could argue it. Yeah, I was stunned by that uh, in one sense, in that I thought it was going to at least stand. It was a bang-bang play, but I'm not stunned in the sense that this happens every game, just about every series. We don't know what the hell goalie interference is. I mean, we don't. It's... It's getting kind of be, to be a comedy routine at this point, but that was a huge break for the Senators, who, by the way, Tyler, this, this Senators team, very good at counterattacks. We saw those Pittsburgh chances, but it seemed like Ottawa would just get the puck and go, and it wasn't just Eric Carlson quick outing the puck. I mean, there was a lot of chances right off of a Pittsburgh chance where Ottawa just said, we're going to go and, and try to take advantage of that vulnerability. Yeah, and even uh, I think it was Miller had the shorthanded chance as well. The puck, I think it missed by maybe an inch or two on the far side. You know, off the deflection on the shorthanded, you know, one on one, they had a good shot there. And even the power play is definitely struggling. I think go for twenty nine going into the night, but you know they finally capitalized on one. Well, it, yeah, it was also five on three, but you're right. I mean, they did, they did score their power play goal, and you'd like to think that in a game seven on the road, which we'll get to in a moment, but that's going to have to be better, they're just not able to get the shot chances, and they finally cleared some space, got it to Bobby Ryan on the just in front of the half wall on the hash marks, and he, and he sniped one right by Murray. I thought that was, that was key for them to get that goal. Hoffman's goal, I mean, to win it was one of the best shots, maybe the best shot of the playoffs. I mean, he rocketed that one in. Yeah, just an absolute bomb and right as you know, I think it was about a minute thirty into the third and kinda just set the tone, you know. Anderson's been shutting Pittsburgh out for a period now and then you jump out to the quick lead and you could just tell senators were just holding on for dear life the whole third period. When it got that crowd invested too, I mean they were they were hot all night, but when these when Hoffman scored that second goal, they exploded and I thought they came ready. They were obviously trying to get everybody going it's so tough we know 
to not not only come back down 3-2 facing elimination, Tyler, but it wasn't a close game at all. I mean, 7 nothing, that was a legit 7 nothing. I mean, they got annihilated there. And, and I'm I'm very impressed by Guy Boucher and company, Guy Boucher and company because they had a couple games in the last series where the Senators got destroyed by the Rangers and they were able to flip the page and come back. I think that's something to be said about that locker room. Yeah, and I mean, even earlier in the series, the Senators have a blowout win against Pittsburgh, too. You know, there's been a couple lopsided victories throughout this series so far. Yeah, that game three where they just jumped on them early. Pittsburgh had a couple moments early where they didn't come out ready, but for the most part dominated the action tonight, but couldn't get it done. It is going to go seven games as I continue chatting with Tyler Tesson on the Money Mitch Effect Eastern Conference Final. Ottawa and Pittsburgh, three games all. I look at the Pittsburgh side of you, Tyler, and one thing that they did lose tonight, in my mind, I think in the minds of many, was the physical battle. It seemed like every shift that Crosby, some of the top guys were out there, it was a battle. I mean, they were getting pulverized, pushed, slashed behind the play. Ottawa realized that that was what it took. In my estimation, that was... Their only chance to win was to make life as difficult and as miserable as possible for their stars. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was evident that was out of a strategy. I mean, any time Crosby, the puck, he had the puck or the puck was even near him. He had somebody just all over him at all times. You know, even Bobby Ryan after the game saying, you know, <laughs> Crosby has a tendency to get worked up and he's like, you got to just go after him. And, you know, as you can see, that's what Ryan was doing every time he was out there with him. And, you know, yeah. it looked like he was getting in his head too. Yeah, we all saw it actually on NBC Sports. I think the mics picked that up pretty good that Bobby Ryan was, was going at him. And I do want to say one thing. I'm a noted Crosby truther i guess i'd say i acknowledge him as the best player in the game not what i would consider a fan uh, of all the antics but gotta respect his ability i want to say this bigger picture argument tyler i don't know a sports league that i don't want to say doesn't protect their star but leaves their superstar their face of their league as vulnerable as the nhl do you think that's a fair statement yeah, I mean, you just, I think the NFL is a perfect example. You look at all the rule changes, you know, in recent years to try and protect the quarterback, you know, and then you look at Crosby's just being mauled in the corner. You know, there's the one scrum in the corner, and you got a guy just coming in trying to rip his face off, basically. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's just no call on any of it. Yeah. Could you imagine if, well, it's the same thing. Yeah, we wasn't even involved in that scrum originally, and a guy comes over and just tries to rip his helmet off. It'd be funny. I mean, how many how many years would the NBA suspend someone that did that to LeBron James? I mean, I don't know. That'd be that'd be a yeah. pretty lengthy ban. But I, I think part of it is the nature of the game. But the other side of it is, I, I just think Crosby, he does have a tendency to get worked up. He he's also no. I'm not gonna say it's his fault, but he's in the middle of it. I mean, he his operating space is in front of the net, is right on the doorstep, and and you and I both know when you're there, that's where all the action is, and that's really all the defense can do when he gets that close and in that scoring opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to his credit too, he, uh, you know, he knows he's going to pay the price and he never shies away from going to those tough areas on the ice too. He's there every single time and he knows exactly what's coming to every time. So I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I respect him, but I'm not the biggest fan, but you got to respect the guy that's willing to pay the price every night. You do. Um, it's it's something to see. I mean, this guy's going to go down as one of the probably 10 to 15 greatest players of all time. And 
we're, we're seeing him battle. I mean, it's not easy. We mentioned the, the other sport with what basketball's going on. It is really not easy to get these 16 wins. I do want to, before we look ahead to Game 7, Tyler, I want to talk about that goaltending situation for Pittsburgh. Now, I was a little shocked that Mike Sullivan went to Matt Murray so quickly. Uh, one bad game from Flurry and Murray's back in. But he was a starter. It was his job. He lost it via injury and had been playing well. So you can kind of see the reasoning there. But what do you think about Murray these uh, last couple games? He has the shutout in Game 5. In Game 4, really, he did a good job down the stretch. Tonight, he looked good. He only let in two goals, but there were some vulnerabilities. Do you think Murray is back to being his elite-level self from a year ago? Yeah, I mean, he's been playing well. The Bobby Ryan goal tonight, I I don't know. I I wouldn't consider that a great goal to give up from Murray's standpoint. You know, it wasn't a great shot, but it was the right place. But I think Anderson makes that save, you know, nine out of ten times. But I think he's playing well enough for them to win. And I think just after Flurry's blow up in game four, I think, you know, they just figured we need a change and give him a chance. And, you know, you get two wins in a row. So I think you got to just keep going with the hot hand. Yeah, it's definitely Murray's net now. Uh, I think it really always was. I think Flurry came in. Sullivan came into this year with the mindset that Flurry is the backup, and Murray might have a little bit of a longer leash. It's hard to pinpoint a game on any goalie where they only the team only scores one game. But there were some plays tonight where you thought he might be a little vulnerable. Some shots near the post and and some close calls for the Senators, but. Yeah, the one that sticks out I think is Torres on the. I think he almost snuck that one in back door where. Murray went down a little early and he went right by him and almost got it in on close side post, but Murray was there to make the stop. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the plus side for Pittsburgh is neither of their goalies look as bad as that as, uh, one of the goalies we're going to get to in the Western Conference in, in just a few minutes, but they're, it's a good problem to have. They have two goalies that could come in in a big game and play, and that's what they're going to need in Game 7 where it will be Pittsburgh and Ottawa for a chance to go to the Stanley Cup Final. I thought this series could go seven because of Ottawa's depth and because of their ability to match uh, speed and intensity with Pittsburgh. But they're going to go to this game. They're going to go to Pittsburgh on the road where they're going to need to bring everything for 60 minutes. And I look at one person in particular, and that's Eric Carlson, Tyler. This team's kind of beat up. Broussard goes down tonight. I don't know if he'll even be able to go in game seven. Carlson, for the first time, all playoffs, I would say looked like he was getting worn down. I think tonight is when you really saw it. Yeah, and you uh, you know, he's going to have to contribute if they're going to win in game 7, you know. He's the star of the team, one of the stars of the league and Ottawa doesn't have quite the firepower that Pittsburgh has, so you're going to need a guy like Carlson to contribute if you're going to have a chance in game 7. It would be nice if we were at any point in our hockey careers told by the coaches you just don't have to practice. You know, that's a nice problem <laughs> for Carlson. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. absolutely. He, you know, he, he played a couple He played a couple shifts. They caught him on camera with some chewing tobacco in his mouth, so that's a nice little little touch. He's, uh, he's one of the best players uh, of his generation for sure, but they're going to need him to play well because he's going to be out there half the game. So, I mean, that's just a necessity there. They don't really have uh, anybody else that can go and eat up the minutes that they're going to need him to. I think for Pittsburgh's standpoint, Tyler, this is a team that just needs to get out to that hot start and capitalize on their power play chances because if they play at the pace they started at this game, they're going to get those chances, they're going to draw penalties, and they're going to score 
you would think they're going to score some goals at home. Yeah, with their power play and the way they're moving right now, I, that's exactly what they want to do. Get Crosby out there, draw a penalty early, and just get a power play goal and get things moving right off the bat. That Pittsburgh power play, too, just one last point on that, Tyler, and I think what makes it so dangerous is you have all these dynamic, great players. I mean, Crosby, like we said, likes to operate in front of the net. That's where he's at his most dangerous. But by putting him there, you need somebody up top. They run that umbrella to make the, make things go, and that's Malkin. I mean, if Malkin's hands weren't as absolutely filthy as they are, I don't think this power play looks as good. I mean, what he's able to do, basically from a defensive point, makes the whole makes the whole wheel spin, and it's just insane how, how lethal it can be. Yeah, no doubt. I Malkin's really the one that makes it go. I mean, Crosby's the one that opens the space up for everybody, just getting everyone to collapse down in front of that. But without Malkin up top, that thing doesn't go. And then you have Kessel on the side, who almost looks like a guy in a beer league out there, and he's just <laughs> yeah, sniping, almost. you know, getting passes from Malkin. <laughs> yeah, that's what you mean. You can't really collapse on anybody because Kessel will just snipe it. And, yeah, he looks like the guy that brings the bucket after the game. But it is going to be a good one, Game 7. What are you thinking? Can Ottawa pull off the unthinkable, keep it going, or do you think this is Pittsburgh's to, to win at home? I mean, I would love to see Craig Anderson keep this going, keep you know the storyline with his wife battling cancer, and you know it's just a great story, and I'd love to see it continue. But I just I don't see any way the Penguins are going to lose Game Seven at home. Yeah, not to toot my own horn, but I had this going seven, and I thought Pittsburgh would win. I can't really change that now, especially given how well Pittsburgh plays at home, how well they played in this series at home. Game six was a coin flip game that Pittsburgh outplayed Ottawa for the most part, but I, I just can't see Anderson as great as he is, as great as that story is. I don't know that he's capable of doing. I don't know that any goalie is capable of doing it again against Pittsburgh in an elimination game. And how good they've been in game sevens, I like Pittsburgh, but with you, I hope I'm wrong. So I hope we do see Ottawa go into the next round. All right, the Money Mitch effect is going to move on to the Western Conference Final, which is a wrap. And the Nashville Predators, for the first time in their franchise's history, are going to the Stanley Cup Final. I, it's, it's truly amazing that this team, now only four expansion teams left that haven't gone to the final, that being Columbus, the Coyotes, the Wild, and the Winnipeg Jets. But the Predators are there, first time ever. Let's, I, I want to start with this, because they, they get credit, but not nearly enough. What an environment those home games have been in the playoffs in Nashville, Tyler. I mean, that's just been an amazing crowd for a non-traditional market. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, as a fan, you can appreciate just watching on TV, hearing about it. Everyone hears about Nashville, just a booming town right now. Population's growing like crazy. But it's just evident with, you know, how many fans are getting at these games, just the nightlife around the games afterward. It's just you know, it's insane. And to think, you know, like Nashville, typically known as a football town, and to see, you know, them embracing a hockey team like this is pretty incredible. Yeah, we're, we're seeing the stars come out too, the country music stars, uh, a lot of football players, a lot of Titans there. I don't know if you saw, uh, Tyler, just a little aside, the offensive linemen that were at the game for the, t- for the uh, Predators, the Titans offensive linemen, and one of them, the, the captain of the O-line, Taylor Luan, threw the catfish on the ice after uh, I think it was yeah. game six. But the funniest part about that story 
was that he wanted to do something to, to get the team going, and he mentioned the catfish, and a Titans team employee overheard him and just said, if you need a catfish, I can get you a catfish. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of teamwork in uh, the Nashville area. Yeah, and then another side story, you have the uh, regular anthem singer just getting all up and bent out of shape about all these country stars yeah. coming in and singing the anthem every game. I mean, does he not realize how, does he not understand how the real world works? <laughs> Superstars yeah, bump it, regular people. That's just how it is. Yeah, I mean, if I'm the Predators, I think I'm looking elsewhere next year for my anthem singer. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's kind of crazy he did that, especially considering that next round you could potentially need two anthems every game. But, hey, you know what? <laughs> What do I know? But the action on the ice, the Predators winning the game, winning the series in six to improve to 12-4 and four in, the West, in the Western Conference playoffs. They were tied 2-2, won a big game five in Anaheim, and then clinched it in game six. First thing right off the bat, Tyler, very impressed with this Nashville team to win both those games down two centers. Ryan Johansson's injury, he's out for the playoffs with having had surgery after bad thigh bruise. Mike Fisher, who may or may not have a broken eye socket, hasn't been officially ruled out for the Stanley Cup. But, Tyler, they lose two of their guys and probably their two best face-off circle men, and they still win this. That, to me, I think can't be understated how impressive that is. Yeah, and, I mean, two guys that contribute on the ice, but also, you know, you lose your captain as well on a team that's never made it to the Stanley Cup before. You know, just locker room presence alone. People don't understand how big of an impact that can have as well. On the ice is huge, but off the ice, I think it's just as important. Yeah, and and look at who else. I mean, they had a couple other guys out. Fiella, who got injured in the series against St. Louis. I mean, they were shorthanded up front. It really goes to show you how good their defensive unit is, that they can overcome all these offensive injuries. It's crazy to me that in this playoffs, P.K. Subban has been Nashville's third best defenseman. And it's been perfectly fine. <laughs> they haven't skipped the beat. I I can't remember a defensive core one to six having as big of an impact in the Stanley Cup playoffs as what Nashville's doing this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I saw it firsthand with you know the Blues playing them. You know, Ellis just killed the Blues, and Getzlaff did a good job kind of shutting them down last series. But you got to expect him to have a big series in the Cup Finals as well. But there's something to be said about that too, right? I mean, you. If you only have a, a top pair to deal with, that might suck for close to half the game, but there's going to be other minutes for guys. You know, they can't play the entire game. There's chances. There's vulnerability there. Nashville just doesn't have that weakness. Every time they send defensemen on the ice, you know, even that third third pairing with Weber anchoring it, not Shea, but the other one, it's still a, a damn good defensive pair. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, that is why they've been so successful is, you know, they're so deep in the back, but even up front, you know, they're getting, you know, contributions from all three, you know, mainly three lines, but all four lines are making an impact and they just, they have a deep team that they trust everyone out there. And I think that's why they've been so successful. Yeah. Let's look for a second. And then obviously Pecker and a. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't not give that guy credit. He's been the backbone for Nashville for so long and, Maybe his best years are behind him, but he still is one of the best goalies in the league, and he's been, if you want to call it dialing it back, he's dialed it back, but he's been, you know, untouchable. Game 6 was one of his best performances that we saw in the playoffs. On the flip side of that, the Ducks just couldn't protect home ice 
this playoff series. And when Gibson goes down and Bernier comes in and lets in four goals on 16 shots, spelled disaster. Yeah, yeah. It, after Gibson was out, it was just downhill from there for the Ducks. And it's kind of just classic Ducks for the past few years, just blowing it late in the series and just cannot close it out. But, you know, they, they had their fair share of injuries as well. But without Gibson, it, it's going to make it tough. Yeah, I'd be surprised when the official injury report comes out probably tomorrow if Gibson didn't completely tear his groin. There were rumblings about that um, in the last series against Edmonton, uh, but it looks like that was it, and that was the killer. I mean, Raquel was huge up front. Ottawa or uh, Anaheim, excuse me, they were the better team for most of this game, but you have a goalie that let in some soft goals. I mean, Nashville's shooting 25%. This isn't basketball, so that's, that's uh, alarming to say the least. They took a five-minute major. Richie, who was playing on that first line with Getzlaff, gets ejected in the first period. I mean, you can't do that. We, we saw them nearly implode. If Corey Perry doesn't throw that puck on net and get that series to 2-2, we're talking about game four as one of the biggest implosions with four penalties, up two goals with seven minutes left. Yeah, and uh, just a lot of stupid mistakes on Anaheim's part, dumb penalties where they just giving away the game. And, you know, when you're in the playoffs and you're in the conference finals, you just shoot yourself in the foot when you make bad plays like that. I mean, you know, look, tonight, Pittsburgh taking all these two. I think the, tonight was their fourth too many men on the ice, penalty so far in the playoffs. But, you know, so far they've been able to escape it. But you never know. One of those comes back to bite you in the Stanley Cup Finals. And they could have had another one, I think, after the one tonight, too. And I have to ask you, though, Tyler, before we put a bow on the Ducks season, What's your thoughts on, on Ryan Kessler as a player, his role with that team? Are you a fan of it? Do you think it's necessary? Do you think he goes overboard? What do you, how do you break down Kessler's antics? Yeah, I mean, he definitely takes it overboard. I always, you know, I'm a fan of guys that will flirt with the line a little bit on going too far. But, you know, he's a gritty player, but you do have to know where to draw the line and what's respectable and when you're just, you know, being an idiot out there sometimes. Yeah, his holding penalty in uh, game six where he, you know, he set the pick play that we see time and time again on the power play, but he just held the guy in the corner for about 10 seconds. I mean, (laughs) they're probably going to call that. Um, But, hey, I mean, look at this Ducks team. It was an interesting year. We, they finally did win, you know, a game seven at home to break that curse. But I'm going to... I'm going to say they finished right about where they should. They might have even overachieved. I mean, think about if they don't pull that game uh, game five, you know, pull the rabbit out of the hat against Edmonton, where they would be. So, hey, this is uh, about where they should have been, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Edmonton gave them a, a huge battle, and I think next year Edmonton's probably going to surpass where the Ducks are. But I think if you tell the Ducks to get to the conference finals, I don't think they're too disappointed in that. Yeah, it was uh, a remarkable year in, in a lot of ways, but still a lot left to be desired. While still chatting with Tyler Tesla on the Money Mitch Effect, the Nashville Predators are in the Stanley Cup Final. First time ever, and I just can't imagine what that's going to be like for the city of Nashville, especially when they host their home games with the Country Music Awards in town. I mean, it's going to be really the sports capital of the country, and it's going to be just a sea of people everywhere. Yeah, Nashville, it's going to be just insane. And with the Country Music Awards there, which, you know, Nashville can barely contain the craziness that goes on with just that event there, I can't even imagine having the first ever Stanley Cup Finals hosted in town at the exact same time. 
Yeah, it's going to be something to watch. Tickets going for uh, starting, I should say, on the secondary market at about $700. So that gives you an idea of how important it is there. And I'm going to ask you this, too. Do you think they care who they play in the final? I mean, they're getting a seven-game series. So at best, they're going to get a team either way that's beat up. But do you think they care who they play? I mean, if I'm them, I don't know how you're not hoping that it's Ottawa. (laughs) Anyway, you can avoid the best player on the planet. You know, I think that's the way you want to go. So I think you got to be hoping for Ottawa at this point. Yeah, I'm I'm with you 100%. I think, to me, the biggest biggest reason for that is Ottawa is banged up. I mean, Carlson's down, Broussard's down. It seems like they're hanging on by a thread and just getting by with blood and guts right now. You know what Pittsburgh has to offer. They have two goalies that could step in in a pinch and, and make plays. Uh, a lot is talked about the repeating factor, Tyler, but I, I'm I'm not buying the uh, the smoke and mirrors that it's impossible to repeat because of all these teams in the last 19 years that haven't done it. Not many have had Crosby. Not many have had players like Malkin and Kessler down the line, and uh, or Kessel down the line, and some pretty good goaltending to go with that. So I think they're they're in prime position to repeat. Yeah, with how these playoffs has gone with some of these lopsided games, when you have, when you know you have a backup goalie, and you really Pittsburgh has two starting goalies on their team that, you know, you can put a little pressure on the other guy to get the best out of everyone each night. You go out there, and if you don't, you know you can switch it up quickly. And as somebody that wants it to be Senators Predators, I got to be honest, the the tactical side of Pittsburgh versus Nashville, and just the quality of play, I think significantly excites me more yeah and i think senators predators is the nhl's nightmare from a rating standpoint if that ends up happening yeah i can i can hear gary bettman screaming off into a distance after this game six nightmare for him but we'll see there's one game left well tyler Tesson, this was fun uh before i let you go just one last thing with the vegas Golden knights coming up uh there'll be an expansion draft this year and you as a blues fan is there anybody that you're worried maybe about losing in this expansion draft or, or somebody that, on the flip side, you, you wouldn't mind seeing Vegas take the contract off the books? I'm, I'm just curious because we haven't really seen an expansion draft in pro sports in quite a long time. Yeah, I'll go with the latter on that one. I would uh, I would love to see him pick up Jay Bomeister from, from us. How did I know that It'd was just be a great, Yeah, It would be a great contract for us to unload. Well, you know what's funny? It's actually kind of cool for for your perspective. Imagine in the last, like, I don't know, five, six, seven years, the names you would have been rattling off of those old Blues roster spots that could have been perfect for an expansion draft. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of them are defensemen, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think one of them might have uh, the last name Brewer, but uh, I digress. <laughs> as <laughs> Jackman, too. But uh, as I look forward to this expansion draft, it's kind of interesting because I think it's more of that. I think there's teams that are willing to part with some players on the fringe in order to part with some players that they just want to get off the books. I mean, you look out in L.A. out here, and if Dustin Brown goes, they will be having a parade down Figueroa Street right outside of Staples Center. They are begging for the Golden Knights to take him off the books. Yeah, and I mean, I think it, you know, he's the one that could be likely, and I think Bo Meester is too. When you get, you know, Bo Meester's won a gold medal, you have Brown has won some Stanley Cups. So, you know, if you need some guys with some veteran leadership and that have been there before and been on successful teams, you need guys like that to help build the culture, even though you know 
you know, be overpaying for, you know, what their output's going to be. Oh, well, of course. I think there's a lot of data to back that up. And But they need to hit that salary cap four, and it's a unique time because they have to they have to hit that minimum. They're willing to take on big contracts just to put something competitive on the ice. I'm really excited for that. I think that's going to be uh, more dramatic to me than the actual draft this year. Uh, so we'll we'll have to see there. Yeah, absolutely. And just the team in Vegas will be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. We were we were casing the place this weekend, and uh, I wouldn't say the buzz has caught on yet. There's still uh, there's still some groundwork to be done, but. They just signed the TV deal that's going to get games on all the way up to uh, Idaho and Montana, so they'll have some fans somewhere. Yep, it'll be between NHL and once they get the NFL out there, it's going to be it's going to city's going to be crazier than ever. It's yeah. going to it's going to be interesting to see how they contain it all out there. Yeah, I for one am terrified uh, at that thought, but <laughs> we'll have to see. All right, Tyler Tesson, this is fun. Thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect, and we'll have to do this uh, sometime in the future for sure. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Mitch. That's it for today's show. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks to both Brett Connors and Tyler Tesson for coming on the Money Mitch Effect and talking about the sports that they love. We've got a big uh, week of sports with more basketball to be played. Cavs Celtics, that's going to maybe wrap up uh, in the next couple of days here. But the Senators Penguins game seven on Thursday is going to be amazing. Stanley Cup starts on Monday. Memorial Day weekend, you know, there won't be any, uh, probably won't be any basketball, there won't be any hockey, but you'll get to uh, relax, probably leave work early Friday and enjoy the nice long weekend. Watch some baseball, enjoy, uh, enjoy life. But thank you for listening to the Money Mitch Effect. You can find all the episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Just search Money Mitch Effect and you will see the entire catalog of episodes. None of which includes, I hope, none of which includes me whining, uh, talking about old debates, and talking about why an NBA player or an NHL player, if they dance, they're going to be bad. Uh, I just don't do that. It's not me. Uh, but if you're listening to this, I, I don't think it's you either. Uh, thank you for that. Thanks to everybody out there uh, who has had a part of this show. Only going stronger. One more episode this week. This was the Money Mitch Effect. I am Mitch Michaels. Thanks again for listening to today's show. And whatever you do, just remember, sports. It's just the game.